0: Welcome to the TechniConnect Automotive Podcast, aimed at inspiring the next generation of EE related talent to choose a career within our space, whilst also supporting the current EE talent pool in making key career decisions. In each episode, we interview industry leaders to discuss their unique career paths, advice for those starting out in the automotive industry, as well as important issues currently impacting the sector. My name is Ferris, and I'm responsible for connecting automotive businesses to the best EE related talent. Today, we are joined by Grant Smith, who's the Chief Engineer for EE Architecture and Software at Volta Trucks. Grant originally became interested in automotive after completing the Formula Student Project in his final year at university, so I'm looking forward to receiving his views on this. He has since achieved an impressive CV, including roles at McLaren Automotive, Gordon Murray Design, and most recently, Volta Trucks, where he's been with the company since it was a startup and has been a key player in its rapid growth. In this episode, We'll explore his outstanding achievements to date, his advice for starting out in their career, as well as his insights into the future of the industry. Morning, Grant. First of all, welcome to the podcast. Morning, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. You're really good. Good, good stuff. So, just, can you start with some introductions, if that's okay?
1: Yeah. So, Grant Smith, I'm chief engineer for EE architecture and software at Volta Trucks. Um, I've been with the company pretty much since it started its journey as a startup Um, about just over two years ago. I started with them now, Uh, yeah, and uh, in in a rapid growth uh, area of the industry. Absolutely,
0: and we're also going to go through your career shortly. You've had some interesting projects, to say the least.
1: But before we before we go into your career, who's Grant outside of work? Yeah, so uh, now my my uh, my outside of work life is is uh, predominantly with my kids. So I've got three kids under five. Um, which keep us very occupied, um, <laughs> it was my daughter's first birthday this weekend, so yeah, it was. Uh, it's always always every evening, every morning, every night, they're always keeping us occupied with doing stuff, so but like, we enjoy that, that's, that's, that's what we like doing, Um and my wife and I are um, both very outdoorsy, we, we've always travelled and done lots of sports, and uh, it's part of what we are with the kids, we're always going out every day doing stuff, whatever it might be, um, yeah, and uh, my background's mainly in cycling, and my wife's is in running, so uh, that's that's what we've done outside of uh, our careers.
0: Brilliant. We'll jump into we'll jump into your career. Um, do you want to start with where you studied?
1: Yeah, so I studied at Warwick University. Um, there, I studied electronics and communication engineering. Um, great uh, foundation course of into the, the core technology of of that area of the business. Um, wasn't targeted uh, specifically automotive in any way. Um, it was the, the fundamentals of electronics uh, and electrical engineering. Um, and where I then uh, moved towards an automotive um, sort of speciality was during my final year and in getting involved in former Student. Um, so I was part of the Warwick Former Student team, um, where there was a f- few of us started working on the electronic aspects of the vehicle um, and, and building a, a basic architecture, some dis- uh, electronic displays, communication, integration of the uh, engine control module. Um, and that was a real sort of kickstart into both the technical and the non-technical aspects of the sort of a a real-time deliverable basis um, project. Uh, And that's where my tutor uh, for that project also had his own small company on the business part. Um, And at the end of uh, of my my degree, um, he offered me a grad placement uh, working for them. Uh, I went to work with them for six months initially just on a a grad placement. And then they offered me a a full-time grad uh, position working with them. Uh, I stayed with them for a while before then moving on to Vistion, um, based uh, over in Essex. Um, Working on uh, uh, diesel combustion engine uh, controllers, but on the can can communication stacks and the communication protocols for them integrating onto the vehicles. And that was a good exposure, then moving from the small business to a a larger business and a a real global business um, uh, environment. Uh, And then after that, I I then uh, was lucky enough to get a position at McLaren Automotive, where they were just finishing the uh, the end of the SLR program. So I sort of spent my first sort of six months a year working on finishing up the S- uh, McLaren Mercedes SLR projects. So the uh, 72, the Spider, and the um, Sterling Moss Edition. So finishing up on the Sterling Moss Edition vehicle. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was a great start and moved on then to the MP412C, working on some uh, critical components there. Uh, joining the program a little bit late, having finished up on the uh, McLaren Mercedes projects, but then overseeing and being the owner of a number of electronic components on the vehicle. So things like the instrument cluster, door modules, um, more body systems, but the ones that hadn't quite progressed as quickly as the core uh, powertrain and chassis systems. Um, And and there I owned uh, owned components through full life cycle, um, going to drive events, getting exposure to the complete business um, and working on that. Uh, And then moved through to the end of that program and then moving on to some of the spider products. Um, And I left then McLaren after about five and a bit years um, just as we were sort of st- starting into the P1 uh, program um, and I went and joined Gordon Murray um, and that's where I then uh, spent sort of 18 months with him working on and I was responsible for all the electronic architecture including the e-powertrain or some prototype vehicles with him um, and leading sort of more of a wider breadth of uh, exposure for me um, so it gave me a good opportunity to work on battery systems Inverter, electronics, um, I'm, I'm working with external partners to really learn um, from the ground up because that, that hadn't been my, my core area of expertise previously. That was starting to come to an end, and at that point, there was always a request or interest for me to to go back and, and help out with some critical topics at McLaren. So I ended up going back to McLaren, which was, wasn't my intention when I left the first time, but it was it was still the right decision. Uh, and I went back as a principal engineer for body issues for, for, for a bit and to help out with some critical uh, aspects there. Uh, but move it, with the ambition of moving full-time into the EE e architecture domain. So there was um, a roadmap towards the new EE architecture, which you now see in the Artura. Um, and so that was where I started uh, leading more of the EE architecture responsibilities there, um, which was the culmination of, of the entire Artura project, basically. Near the end of that is when then I uh, left and joined Volta Trucks, as initially as EE e architecture and software manager. Uh, I'm now chief engineer. And and my responsibilities now I've got five main areas. So I own the control system engineering team who write the requirements how the, how the functionality of the vehicle works, all the network design um, and the architecture concepts of how we integrate everything onto the networks, the soft the embedded software on the vehicle, um, and the delivery of that whether it's off the shelf slightly modified or completely bespoke to our requirements, uh, all the diagnostics uh, solutions both on the vehicle and integrated with the off vehicle diagnostic tools. And then a, a DevOps team as well for integrating all our tools and processes together. Fantastic. Fantastic. I think I think if you go back and sketch out your
0: career, I think you've done very very well so far <laughs> in regards in regards to what you've worked on. Uh, obviously, what you're doing now is yeah, it's a testament testament to yourself. I just wanted to pick up a, a point about of the student. Obviously, it's a big big discussion point, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in detail through the podcast. But that was that was. One of the key influences wasn't it really to steer you into maybe looking at the automotive and motorsport industry
1: in general? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was the first conversion from uh, everything being theoretical in university. So theoretical projects, where you still had timing and you still had an objective to meet, but it wasn't it wasn't a perceivable outcome as such. You, you delivered a, a, a thesis or a document and you got a score at, at a point. But working on the, the former student was uh, a real eye-opener to sort of race day mentality, there is no moving the deadline. If you if you turn up with a car that doesn't work, you turn up with a car that doesn't work and, and that's what you stand in front of and that's your responsibility. Um, so moving into that environment and seeing that was 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 really sort of my sort of introduction to what I found to be the, the exciting part of converting from just doing theoretical engineering to real engineering yeah. Kind of product. Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: And going through your career, you know, you've worked on some interesting interesting things, but what's been your flagship moments ultimately what you're most proud of so far?
1: Yeah, so on top of the former machine thing, which we just talked about, um, the MP412C, um, because that was then moving from a um, to a, a true business mentality of we had a there was a company there was a there was a um, financial uh, responsibility to meet there was a timing to uh, to meet, and the company was growing massively. We were expanding and leaving the, the Mercedes uh, umbrella uh, and moving towards our own brands, um, and taking that challenge on was a big thing. Um, and then also taking the risks and expanding my technical horizons, moving with Gordon Murray and, and getting involved in the e-powertrain concepts and, and the deliverables of those. Um, McLaren Artura as well, um, sort of the, the, having the basis of the idea behind all the architecture concept, changing the tools, the processes, the product itself uh, and moving that towards what it is now. Uh, and, and then using that again as the basis for my experience to start Volta from scratch. So Volta is in, entirely from scratch. My responsibility, um, whereas everything prior to that was either derived, or I was a fast follower, or involved in the early concept, but not not my entire idea. Exactly and for for people
0: who don't don't know, obviously you know you'll you'll read the magazines and you might see the McLaren Artura and go oh another McLaren, but actually behind the scenes from an EE perspective, that was huge, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, so it, it's well over ninety percent completely new EE architecture from the ground up. Um, so yeah, a completely uh, completely new uh, tools, processes, product, everything involved in it, basically. Um, yeah, completely designed from the ground up. Absolutely, and to obviously, Vol- Volta Trucks as as a business, you built that from the
0: the ground up. Ultimately, from an EU perspective, haven't you? One of the first to, to go in there.
1: Yeah, we have no parent company, so we have no access to any um, uh, off the shelf components from from a lead OEM. We are our own company. Um, we can obviously source components that are available in the market that have been developed for other OEMs. But they are, not, they are not under our design control necessarily. We, we are just going to the market and finding those parts. And, and we have to fill the gaps where we can't find what we need. So developing some product some parts of the architecture ourselves, but recognizing our, our core aspiration is to get to market quickly. We cannot go and design everything from scratch like a normal OEM would and, and sort of expect to spend I don't know eight years developing that from scratch. Um, we, we've got a two year plus time to market that we, we really had to meet. Um, for a number of reasons and so that that's has a massive influence on the, on the way you approach the design and what you choose to design and what your risk level is it's very different brilliant great insight so
0: you know if you look through your career now if you could now go back to grant at 16 years old
1: based on everything that you've learned what, what would you tell yourself um so I think I had a, I had a, a close call uh, when I nearly uh, completely screwed up my A-level. Um, <laughs> t- took, a little bit, took a little bit too much time to enjoy life, the, the uh, opportunities to start enjoying life. And uh, I, I managed to scrape through into university, um, but that gave me a real reality check to try and start realising that I wanted to do this and it was really enjoyable. Um, and so I started to knuckle down and, and, and get, get really involved in, in trying to catch back and get on top of a number of the topics. I failed at a couple of topics in university, spectacularly but they gave me a massive learning uh, opportunity to realize well, what, what went wrong and how to change that. So the failures aren't necessarily bad things. If you react to them correctly, they can, they can really ch- turn things around. And I can call out some very specific um, products I worked or projects I worked on, sorry. And I, I just look back and go, how did I get it so wrong? But actually the, getting it completely wrong changed my mental approach to solving it and doing it the future. And it's something I do day to day now, completely differently. So there's, there's that, um, I'd say realizing you, the mentality so realising how, how you can apply a can-do mentality to anything, just keep going. You, you, there's, there's no reason to stop other than you give up. Um, so if you just keep going and, and you have that can-do mentality, whether it's what you learn in university or you start out with or you adapt to doing, you'll you'll find it valuable in any business. Any business will like people and, and value people who just have that mentality to do the can-do thing and keep going and keep, and keep involved. Um, and then... I'd say jumping through obviously all of my career um, points that, that they are all based off one fundamental, which is the the learning from university. So that, that core the core learning and the, and the um, where you start from and the fundamentals that you learn, if you really get that right, expanding from there with can do mentality, you'll find yourself in a position of strong uh, capability and leadership potentially. Um, and, and they they just en- enable you to then expand further in future. Um, so the core engineering fundamentals is something I'd call out as being a, a real um, key point.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's that it's that blend, isn't it? When we discussed behind the scenes, it's it's a blend of engineering fundamentals and, and getting that right, and then uh, obviously right mentality, which is you know personal, and then also trying to blend it with commercial acumen. So. Sometimes um, what you can do, you get like in deep into engineering and you can f- completely forget that. It's, a, it's It needs to be commercially viable on all accounts for the yep. business to run. And I think what you've done really well is you've adapted your mind early, hence why you probably progressed so quickly.
1: Yeah, you, you, if you use the technical fundamentals to then assess and learn and grow into business acumen, you'll, you'll find that you present good, justified uh, options at the start of, of, of being involved in business decisions. And then you'll realize later that you can actually recommend what the business should do because you can interpret what your technical decisions are having as an impact on a business. And then you'll you, you will then progress towards the point where you actually can be trusted to be the leader and don't need to seek approval. You're, you're given the free reign of saying, I trust that you're going to make the right business decision. You don't need to justify it. To some degree, um, and, and as you build yourself up to the point where you're then effectively the leader, because you're both making the right technical decision and the the right business acumen decision for the for the company you work for.
0: So if, you, if you take your fast cycling career and then you brought it you brought it into the world of an automotive career, I think what what you've done and you know you've you've done incredibly well at mclaren automotive you worked on some really fast-paced uh demanding projects obviously mclaren or any type of motorsport environment is demanding you then turn your hand to gordon murray which is probably a similar a similar environment you've then gone over to a brand new startup trying to do things in very very quick time and it's it's high pressure but it's pro- you know it's a challenge that obviously is a key motivation but stripping all that back What's been the the key ingredients for for grants to actually execute
1: these challenges? Mm, yeah, so I definitely refer back to the core engineering technical principles. Don't don't necessarily you, you've got to find yourself in a balance where you can make risk based decisions. So everything that you do. Uh, whether you're writing a piece of code and you've got a deadline to do it today or within a week, you'll make a risk-based decision on how complex or how, or how complete or how much risk you're willing to take of, of providing an uncommented piece of code or whatever it might be. These are all the risk-based decisions you should think about consciously. Am I making the right decision? And start thinking about how you're making the decision more than just the decision and the outcome. And, and as, you, as you evolve into those uh, assessments, as you're doing it and realizing you're making those assessments, you'll start to to start realizing what you're doing subconsciously sometimes. Um, And so a lot, a lot of the decisions, I mean, I'm still involved in meetings daily on uh, sprinting in in code development and making a decision on what, what to prioritize or not, because there isn't enough time. There isn't enough money. There never is. There there is no world that we work in where there is enough time or money to get everything done perfectly. So Realising that now means that you, you, whatever you start on, whether it's a university project or um, or a, um, uh, a, a real world uh, deliverable within a company, you you, you if you start out realising that there isn't enough time, there isn't enough money, and, and always start thinking about what's Plan B if Plan A doesn't work, you'll start getting the right approach to to all the complex problem solving that you're you will face. Brilliant,
0: and obviously now you now you're leading uh, teams ultimately, and you're leading the fully e spectrum
1: how have you adapted that approach into leadership? So, yeah, a good question. So uh, the biggest transition from being the the technical expert is to then being the leader of a technical team. Um, And there's a balance between knowing you could get involved in every topic, but actually then you'd never have a a single hour of the day to do anything else. So you have to realise at some point you've got to start uh, delegating. And to delegate, you've got to have a team that you implicitly trust. So... Uh, the way I've tried to approach this mentally is I've always hired people who I trust to be technical experts or better technical experts a lot of time than I could be on a certain subject. Yeah. And what they want from me is the right leadership of what to choose and prioritize. So we're, we're aligned very well on the technically what we should do and they, and they can give me good options and, and ideas of what they think is the right solution to a problem or I can challenge them with some good ideas or options if I get a different uh, uh, requirement to to achieve the end goal. Um, but as a team, I, I, I empower them to, to make the decisions and work autonomously. I don't want to. I can't be the person standing there overseeing what they're doing every day, every minute, of every hour. Um, the team's nearly thirty people strong now, and so I, 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 I lose touch with some of the people that I originally hired. I can't meet with them face to face as I used to do in the first instances, and, and have me- meetings with them. But they all know that they can reach out to me if there's a problem. Um, but they, they also know to normally just go through their line manager. But we all have a a sort of a a background understanding that anyone in the team can try and help out. Um, Everyone is there to to help out with each other. Um, There's no silos. There's there's nothing like that in my team. And and the core technical experts and the people are there to help everyone else out, basically. That empowerment's absolutely key, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I I think the the other thing to call out probably is the, the different mentalities as well. So if you build a team of the same people, you'll find you'll get the same answer and no one will challenge each other. Ha- having a discussion about a complex topic and and uh, seeing or hearing everyone just nodding and agreeing means means either they're not listening or they're all agreeing and you've got the wrong team necessarily, because if it's a challenging topic, you should find people don't aren't in agreement or there is a problem to resolve. So having uh, so, sort of a, a risk taker versus someone who's a finisher and a high quality output person, you put the two of them together, you'll get a good balance of a, uh, risky approach to a new problem that is finished correctly for the, for the the problem they're trying to solve um if you have lots of risk takers you just get chaos if you have lots of injuries, <laughs> yeah. you get nothing done so you've got to find some balance in the middle basically really interesting
0: so if we look at the e automotive industry over the next you know five ten years if, if people are going to choose to come into this space now because it's it's fast evolving it's still rapidly evolving at the moment from your perspective grant what, what do you think's coming up from a from a technical perspective
1: yeah, so outside of the architecture changes, we will come on to a second, that everything electronically is getting more complex. So each of the electronic products on the vehicle, an ECU, a sensor, an actuator, are inherently getting bigger and more complex. Um, there, there are still small ECUs, small components, but there are the core, where a lot of the engineering is going into, is a highly complex ECU on an ever-increasing complex ECU. So those are the fundamentals of the way that the, the e-architecture is going. And they, they they are enablers to then the change in the architecture concepts. So whether you go to something like a geographical domain controller, um, a zonal architecture, a central CPU or a mix of a mix of these, um, they're all based off uh, a number of core elements of your architecture becoming more complex than you previously would have had where you had, uh, one ECU one function like a body controller a hate track controller a lighting controller or something like that um, they they are being amalgamated you're merging domains sometimes body powertrain chassis into one ECU and, and having to overcome those issues so they're they're the the biggest challenges in the way that the industry is moving towards in terms of the architectures. I'd say
0: yeah no absolutely and just for listeners who might not understand what's happening within a within the vehicle itself what's the reason why we we're ultimately changing the the architecture because we've obviously got ADAS that it's been talked about a lot but a lot of people would say it's still not quite ready but in the next 10 years it should be but so, so what, what's coming up that's causing this change from your perspective
1: yeah so the, the autonomy uh, aspect is a big influencer i think it's it's an initiator to the idea um of of a Uh, let's say, a highly complex ECU or like a hypervisor on on an ECU running to to amalgamate data. Um, But beyond that, nearly all the OEMs are moving towards wanting to always cost and weight down. Uh, And a number of the architecture concepts like zonal or geographical or central CPU, they either, uh, as an enabler, bring a lower cost, lower weight solution, but they potentially also bring some uh, ability to support or quite often do bring the ability to support uh, things like software download, software reflash, um, or a new business model like selling software products uh, after the vehicle is sold and, and providing an update pack—sort of the the concept of I don't know flashing a, a higher power engine ECU um, calibration to a vehicle that you paid for for a day whilst you're on a track day in a McLaren—that kind of thing that you can you can conceivably pe- see people paying for—and um, it—and it you need an architecture that supports the concept of being able to do that, basically. Yeah, no, absolutely, and if.
0: You know, obviously from your experience of hiring, obviously growing your department out now, everything that you saw at companies like McLaren and Gordon Murray, would you there's an argument to be had, isn't there? And there's no right or wrong in, in my opinion of if you're coming into the sector, do you want to become and hang your hat on a specific technical specialism? Whether that's you know, I'm gonna come in and be a, a cybersecurity expert, I'm gonna come in and do functional safety, I'm gonna come in and actually just become a complete base software whiz. Um do you, do you advise anybody to, to specialise in certain areas based on your
1: experience? Um, there's no harm in doing it, but I would. What I would say is that everything is based around the concept of software running inside an ECU. So whether you whether you are uh, whether you are the person writing the code, you're a functional safety manager assessing a safety goal and risks of code, and you're going through a fault tree analysis, and you're doing TARA's in in the cybersecurity world now on the risks, and then. Or well, how do you solve a risk identified from a TARA? You're implementing a solution. It's software-based inherently. They are always they always fall back on the people that have the core engineer expertise in, in, in that area. They're enablers to being either a specialist in one area or a wide-ranging, like in my role. Um, it, 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 it's enablement of being, in that initial instance, a good understanding of your technical expertise and then specialize further as you go along. So I, my, in my initial instance, I was a software engineer in, in that role. Then I moved into project engineering. So I got exposure to um, non-technical areas. And then I moved into other technical areas like doing e-power training. And then I moved back into more, I'm now moving back into more of a managerial role as a chief engineer. So they all still rely on a core aspect, which is, do you understand the technical concept? Um, and if you do, then you can start making other uh, decisions or other specialist decisions, choosing to specialise in other areas. Yeah, it's, it's really good advice.
0: It's really good advice. And if you look at the industry as a, as a wider piece, coming out of the E slightly, you know, what do you think is coming
1: up and coming in the industry? Anything that you feels impacts in the sector? Um, so I think although i've not been heavily involved in it you can see that the the l5 autonomy is more challenging than i think everyone wished or hoped it would be <laughs> Definitely. um and that that's still proving a real challenge to bring online um i think only this week we had the announcement for ford bringing online their hands-free motorway driving um which is which is an interesting one um when you look at it compared to where tesla were a number of years ago in, in pr- producing that um so the 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 autonomy aspect is a big one um i'd love to be able to commute to work and, and actually work and sit in a car and not have to, to drive to work because i would spend more time being productive um but then i think the other things that we've recently experienced uh, sort of i think all the om's have gone through this and you, you can find this in publications is the supply chain interruptions and shortages um so with the the those issues experienced in the silicon market the the impact it's had on a number of OEMs in a number of different ways. There was no plan. There was no expectation of shortages of silicon. And suddenly you're into massive design changes because of a, of a pure issue outside your control, somewhere down a tier one, two, three, level four. Sometimes you just had no sight of this sub supplier who suddenly can't produce you parts or there are no parts and you're having to make a massive change. So hopefully we're coming out the back of that now and we'll see less of that and, and the market stabilizing again and therefore you can expect to produce the product you've started to design in a number of years in the future rather than find out as you get to production that part's no longer available. Um, And I think, obviously, the the architecture changes are coming. The the, the zone architectures or the centralized CPU, they are starting to get off the ground. I think everyone who, as the OEMs, as they've gone through the transition from the one function, one ECU design in the first instance and that first leap they make outside of that, merging of domains, geographical domains, or a central CPU or an ADAS platform, when they've done that, they've all had a realization of how complex and how much more than just the product it is that you're changing. You have to change the way your teams work, the tools you use, the processes you use to reduce, produce something, how you develop the product, the time the processes you use to use it, that they all change or influence by what the product is changing electronically. Uh, and so they, they are coming but they are, certainly my experience they're harder than everyone expects. And so once you've gone through that journey once or twice, you start to realise it's going to take a little bit more time than everyone expects maybe. Um, but they're coming. They just need a bit more time and they are really, really big complex ECU projects to, to take on.
0: Uh, absolutely. Ultimately, the, there's a lot of talk, isn't there, that the, the DNA of a car, it's already happening as such, but the DNA of a car, especially in the next five, 10 years, will be primarily software. And it's, uh, I think, what we've seen, and it's very speculative at the moment, but what you're seeing in the market and what people can probably expect is the gateway into automotive competition. So we look at OEMs, we look at the, the usual suspects, the BMWs, we look at the, the Audis, uh, the Jaguar Land Rovers, you then go in the motorsport world. Actually, the gateway into designing the car could be more software-based, and that's why you see companies, I don't even see the likes of Apple or Google, and that's where So the automotive industry as a piece could, could ultimately widen as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you, you're going to get new pairs as well, um, as, as defined by us being a startup. Um, you, you, the the opportunity is there now for people to to define their vehicle in more than just the, the existing stand, standard way. Um, so whether you look at Volta or people like Rivian or what Arrival are trying to do or anything like that, they, they are huge disruptors to the existing market and they come at it with a very different uh, solution. Sometimes the product itself. Sometimes the way they do it. Where their background comes from. If we talk like the Google and the Apple type com- concept of them moving potentially into the space, that there there are very different ways of doing it, and, and it's good for the industry because it, it will generate change and it will improve things.
0: Which leads us nicely into the next question. So you know, based on all your experiences,
1: why, why develop a career within the automotive space from your perspective, Graham? So I think it, even if you don't end up moving into the automotive space, if you if you consider that uh electronic engineering so software in hardware if you consider that as a first step i think you'll find if you look around you nearly everything that works or functions in your house in your car where you work there's a bit of software running on it somewhere if you if you if you want the pure definition of a role that i don't think is going away in any time soon even with all the current current ai start uh um, changes i think the fundamentals of (coughs) inventing solutions to problems in uh ECUs whether it be embedded software or windows based systems that they're they are the fundamentals of what is a, a good and stable career i think for engineers um, and if you like the automotive then great um it, it's a somewhere in the middle of the balance between sort of your longer term projects like aerospace and marine which in your 10 plus years and you might find it hard to see the end product come to fruition because you've got to stay around for a long time consumer electronics runs really fast puts to market things much quicker than um, uh, you'd expect because the market's is demanding it. People are willing to take more risks. You can't do that with a with a safety system in a vehicle. So, vehicle and uh, automotive electronics is sort of a for me a good balance between the the, the pace and the risk and the uh, other methodologies like security and functional safety, which give you some stability. Uh, um, and you see the product. You get hands on. You get a chance to be in the vehicle. Um, these are really for me tangible benefits of working on a product. You work on a um, an aerospace or a marine project you're probably never going to get in the plane or go in the boat. Um, if you work on consumer electronics, you will, you'll play with it, but it'll be in a really high path, at higher pace and fast environment, um, which, which is slightly more risky. And generally they put to market um, products, which are still undergoing development uh, fundamentally. Um, so yeah, I, I like the automotive balance, um, but I like the fact it's built off a, a core piece of uh, skills and roles. I, don't, I just don't see it going away. The, the core engineering concept of electronic engineering, I think is here to stay for quite some time.
0: Thanks, thanks for coming coming up sharing your career sharing the trends come some really interesting points there and appreciate it thank you very much thanks Graham thanks very much Cheers. thank you bye bye